Hello everyone, once again welcome to our new installment of the beautiful City Press product called Books and Beverages. My name is Fred Kumalo, I'm the host for the show and uh, today in the studio I'm joined by a, a newly minted author and lawyer, uh, Bulelwa Mabasa. She's going to be te telling us about her writing journey but more specifically about her new book called uh, My Land Obsession. It's just uh, hit the shelves and um, we ran an extract in City Press. Those of you who might have missed it are most welcome to revisit it. It's online and uh, it's available and it's very engaging. So, Sisbuleloa, welcome once again to City Press uh, Books and Beverages. To get the ball rolling, uh, I would like us, before you get into the book itself, mm. Uh, being a new author, tell us about your writing journey. Why, why did you de decide to write this book? And how, uh, how was your writing journey? What were yeah. the challenges and uh, whatever? The process. Whatever. The process. Yeah. So I have always been intentional about wanting to be an attorney and being part of a voice in social justice. But what I hadn't uttered and what I had never verbalized was my secret hope and passion for writing because I just feel like it's, it's such a vulnerable process. You know, I write every day. I mean, we write briefs to clients, Obviously, we write letters, yes, yes. but never did I imagine that one day I would have to put my story um, in a nonfiction way and about a subject that I was so passionate about. So... I did not decide to write. I think when I was approached by um, a publisher at Penn Macmillan, they said, you know, we think you have a good story to tell. You're one of the few black women who have um, risen through the ranks in a male-dominated attorney's practice, write about your career. So I was supposed to write about my career. Yes. But then when I started the writing journey, it just felt that it just cannot be a story about I went to the school, I went to varsity, then it felt to me that I needed to pause and reflect about my history and my heritage because that's where I can trace and track um, the beginnings of what ultimately led to to me as a, as, a, as a woman, as a mother, as a wife. And so I then took a chance and said, you know, they wanted to write, me to write about my career and my involvement in, in, in land reform, but the only way that made sense for me in telling the story is was to personalize it. Sure, sure. You know, and to move it away from a political debate uh, mainly or the debate about expropriation and parliament. So it actually helped me heal and trace back the roots of where it all began because it just was not about... It didn't The story doesn't start with me writing, you know, me becoming a lawyer or writing a book. It it needed me to trace back those those roots. And the process was very difficult. I think this was the most difficult piece of writing that I needed I ever needed to do because it was so personal and it, it needed me to draw from deep within sure. and to go to those corners that I hadn't that I packed away in my mind. Um, some of it trauma, some of it just also realizing that the challenges that I've been through. So it was, but ultimately it was cathartic. 
Cool. Thank you. Now, the, the title itself speaks volumes, uh, to use the pun, um, My Land Obsession. And I'm reading this book, um, a township boy myself. Yeah. I'm kind of removed from uh, the, the, the issue of the land. I only engage at a very intellectual level about the land because I have never been... Mm. I have never had access to the land. I was born in a township, mm. raised in a township. Yeah. Mm. So why did you choose to write about land? How do you relate to mm. the land being a suburban wo a woman? Mm. Yeah. So in my formative years, um, I used to stay in Zone 4 Middlelands with my grandparents yes, yes. and my parents. Um, and that would have been from, say, 1979 till 1986. Now, I've always been a curious child. And... There was this painting at home with, with the, I don't know if it's the painter called Verna, but in most townships, there was this painting of um, a black girl or a black boy with a teardrop. Yes, and I then remember painter. You remember, remember that one? Very well, yeah. It's iconic, yes. Yes. yes, yes. So I saw that painting and I was just curious as a five-year-old, you know, and I asked my father to say, you know, why is this girl crying? Because she just looked like she could be me. Mm -hmm. And my father said she's crying because her land was taken away from her. And it's only when I started writing the book that I remembered all of that. Wow. And time goes on. I felt for some reason, maybe that was the root or that was the, 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 the thing that just stayed with me. And then I remember then growing up and feeling like in the, in the career that I'm going to choose, I'm going to need to speak for her, that landless black, black child, black girl. And so then, then my father just bombarded me, um, she, he knew that I loved to read, so he bombarded me with African literature. Mm -hmm. So I remember Mongani um, Sirote's uh, To Each Birth is Blood, and Shinua Achebe, and Guki Yango. And for me, in those books, that theme continued around colonization and land dispossession. Land dispossession, yes. Yes. Yes, yes. So then I was, I grappled with this, and then I grew up, I became a teenager, and then there's the fall of the Berlin Wall, and my father and I engaging about this, and... Then I get to university, now I'm studying law, and I thought when I'm studying law, I'm going to learn about the Native Land Act, the Group Areas Act, but it didn't happen. Oh. It, it was not there in the syllabus, but I couldn't stop remembering my, my grandparents who were firstly removed from Sophia Town uh, in the 50s, telling me the stories about how they forced to be removed. My grandfather talking about how his life was as a mine worker and the, oh. you know, those indignified body searches. And then in the holidays, my mother came from a village called Marapiani. Then I go to Marapiani and I'm like, hmm, this where, land where, is where different. Where is this? Which province Marapiani is Marapiani initially was northwest, but it's in Pumalanga. It's um, just before, towards Petersburg. Oh, Sorry, okay, Bolokwani. Okay, okay. Uh, you can tell I'm old. <laughs> so, <say Petersburg>. <laughs> yeah. so, so then I see the, the land being vastly different from Soweto. Soweto is densified and mm. it's three room, four room houses. It's literally next to each other. Then I go to Marapiani and it's like this big land, this grazing land, but they use long drops. There's no sanitation. There's no electricity. So I was always just drawn from how differently life was from Middlelands to Marapiani. And the fact that in Marapiani they were, you know, getting water from underground. They had a pump. But they were also feeding themselves from the ground. And so I think all of these things. And then I start to go to school in a multiracial school mm -hmm. in 1994. Mm -hmm. and, 
And then I realized that suburbia is vastly different. Different world altogether. Altogether. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, I, you know, yeah. you could hear birds chirp. Yes. But I didn't realize that in Midlands, because there were no trees, and the reason because there were no trees, people built back, back rooms, you're not going to attract birds exactly. singing. Exactly. So, so that metaphor on land and my exposure to it um, and what my father had said kind of recorded in my head over and over again. And also with my political inclination, I was always interested in politics. I was always interested in social justice. And that's when, when I did my postgraduate uh, adverts for constitutional law, I chose to do it on comparing the Zimbabwe-Lancaster agreement to our constitution then. It was brand new. When I was first at university in, in 1997, our constitution had just been promulgated. One year, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. And so... For me, it was like, okay, what can this constitution do? Maybe the land question. Okay, many of our, of our listeners out there who read City Press, um, some of them are, um, are just plain readers. Others are aspiring authors um, uh, as well mm. who will um, cherish um, some thoughts, some ideas as to how you, I mean, not at a practical level, mm. how you embarked on writing the book. First, yeah. Yes, um, do you sit uh, every day mm. uh, at a given time? Do you have a ritual around your writing? So, first of all, I started writing in the hard... No, I started writing in December 2020. Mm-hmm. Was it 2020? And remember now, I've got three children. I'm married. I've got an attorney's practice. It's busy every day. I've yes. got a team. Yeah. yeah. So, for me, because I'm a nocturnal person, I chose to write when everybody went to bed. Because I, I, I just love that silence of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would spend maybe two hours just writing. And then other moments felt like I need to be away from the writing. Because I didn't want to ever feel like I'm just writing intellectually. I needed to feel what I was writing. So there were moments when I needed to stay away, away from it. Um, but I think what I remember the most is just the vulnerability you know, of it. And I think I switched off from one day this book is going to be read by others because I think that's what made me anxious. Yes. Then I was like, no, let me just write my story. And I, I forgot about it's going to be published one day. Other people are going to have views about it. Yes. Other people are going to... So my ritual was mainly the date of night. Um, I couldn't write every day. I didn't have... Sometimes it's just not impossible. Uh, it was just impossible to to write every single every day. day. Yeah, you're drained, you're tired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. But 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 my rhythm, the best times where I read, I, I I wrote the most was at night in the in the let's say between ten p.m. and two a.m. Okay. Those were the those were my times when I just felt so connected with myself. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And uh, different writers have got different uh, habits and so on. Others would write a draft and give to a friend. Do, do, do you have a, a primary reader mm. as you were writing? Uh, how did it work for you? I didn't have a primary reader. So mm. obviously I had my publisher, Andrea Natris um, yes, from yes, Penn. Yes. And I would write a chapter and send, write a chapter and send. But I didn't want, I deliberately wanted it to be so organic that I didn't want to give it to my husband to read before and give permission or my sisters or or even my children. Yeah. The first time that I had someone other than the publisher reading it uh, was my husband, mm-hmm. and he read it overnight. <laughs> he finished the book overnight. Wow. But it was just when I submitted the manuscript. So I, I didn't want it to be colored and textured by uh, what other people would think yes. Uh, yes. or 
you know, I really just wanted to be my, like I was giving birth to my organic child. Sure. So sure. I didn't want the child to come out being, having someone so and so's hands and arms, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 So now, but uh, there's a lot of autobiography in the book. Mm. Uh, so were you not concerned, that, or did you have to interview um, family members or just to, to, to jog your memory, to remind you mm. and stuff like that? Did you have to do that? So I did do that in relation to my uh, maternal grandfather, because remember, I'm growing up in Midlands, yes. Soweto. Yes. So certain facts um, about the... the, the the background of my maternal grandfather, who was in Marapiane in that village, needed to be corroborated. But it happened organically. So we would go to Marapiane because maybe there's a cousin's wedding or maybe there is um, a, a funeral that we're attending. I use those opportunities to say, you know, Rangwani, tell me, you know, remind me, jog my memory. Where wasn't that from? You know, so that yeah. I did, but it was yeah. not formal. Um, it was an organic process. And I did want to... Um, use memory as my tool. Yes. Um, because I think memory, how you remember things is what's going to determine how you feel about them and ultimately how you write about them. Exactly. So I didn't want to distort what I perceived to have been my memory to be yes. distorted by someone else saying, no, but in actual fact, uh, when you were five, that painting you know, in the kitchen was not in the kitchen, it was in the bathroom, for example. So it was literally me going back to my five-year-old self and yes. how I remember things. Yes. And I'm pretty yes. sure that yes. there'll yes. be inaccuracy. I wanted to own my memory. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, beautiful. And uh, did you, as we were writing, hmm. uh, did you have a reader in mind to hmm. say, this is the kind of reader I'm, I'm trying to appeal to <laughs> and uh, this is how they are going to read the book? Yeah. Uh, did you have that? Yes, that, I that did. Yeah. So... In my formative years, I was hoping to capture the reader whose Goko Omkulu grew up, was, was, was the neighbor to my uh, Maui and Dada, who says, oh man, this is our story. This is our shared story. Yes. And this is a story about a lot of people who are unseen and unheard, right? And then as I grew up, um, I also wanted to, I thought about the black generation of, the, you know, us who matriculated in 96, right at the dawn of democracy. I also wanted to document the trauma that we experienced in these so-called white schools. Yeah. Remember, our parents were probably couldn't even afford it, but they wanted us to go to those schools because they wanted to secure our futures. But what I wanted to capture is that quest for equal education and opportunity, how much it, of us it ate away from, you know, um, being reminded that you don't belong here, mm -hmm. being reminded that, mm -hmm. you know, don't speak that language here. You know, that sense of belonging that we grew up with. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to capture the, the same generation now when we were out of school and we were now at university. Um, I think I speak about the TKZs, the, the Tebes, them do's that at that point from 96 onwards, and it was the foundation of the beginnings of YFM, that was our rebellion. You know, that was when we, we I think, found that we, we have permission to embrace our blackness. Because remember, we're in these schools. We needed to twang. You needed to be, you know, proximity to whiteness. Yep. But yep. then when we came of age at university and in these spaces, we claimed back. And that's why I think the lyrical content of TKZ, you know, boys who were from private schools, was so important. Because that was saying we... 
we, 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 we embrace our blackness and we embrace where we come from and we, we love who we are, be, we are becoming. So that's another audience that I wanted to capture. And then when I then moved to in a law firm, I'm speaking to the legal fraternity there. Sure. I'm speaking sure. to um, certain practices that are um, even archaic. I speak to practices that make it difficult for women to stay in the profession because of the demands and because it's so male-dominated that um, hopefully a child or a man, even a woman, who wants to become an attorney can see that the challenges, you know, I state them in a very um, honest way, you know. Um, and I think also, I also speak to people who want to know, well, how do you then build a whole practice around land reform in a corporate commercial firm, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I share those experiences. And I basically the message is for, and I think it goes beyond the law profession. I think anyone who is in in corporates in South Africa where our economy is still in the hands of the white minority, how then do we interact with those spaces yeah. um, as black people and how, what tools we need to, you know, kind of keep pushing. And in my case, um, it was because land reform has inhabited me all my life. If I'm to stay in an in attorney's practice, I must find a way to make it real and make it a sustainable practice. Um, so where, where my, my profession and my passion can live together. Sure. So it's all of those different people yes, that I'm, yes, I, I was yes. thinking about. I was also thinking about my elders who are still alive. You know, um, I, I, at the end of the book, I discover that my long-lost adopted grandmother was the first admitted female attorney wow. in all of South Africa wow. in 1967. Wow. And this information is not well known, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I think I appeal to everyone. I think there is something for everyone to either find in relation to or um, people to, to, to see themselves in the story as well. Cool, cool. And the, the, the subject matter itself is very sensitive. Um, mm. We saw how, how it was mishandled in Zimbabwe, if it was mishandled, yeah. the, the kind of problems that it generated and so on. Uh, do you think we are handling the, the issue properly in South Africa, the land reform no. question? What are the challenges? We are not. And, you know, I'm not giving political views because I'm not a politician, but, I mean, this is just what personally that I think happened. Mm -hmm. I think when the government of the day came into power... Um, they had bread and butter issues to deal with, electrifying the country, um, you know, providing health care and education. And I think that the land question is neglected. Whether that was neglected by design, or, you know, or by, um, by error, I can't say. But what I noticed was that when, you know, almost farming became a metaphor for land reform, and that always bugged me because as I'm saying, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, but look at Alex, Alex Township, look at the townships in Midlands, the back rooms, people are living in back rooms, or even the people that have hijacked buildings in town. Mm. And I looked at the fact that the densification in urban areas, people like more than 65% of people want to be in urban areas because that's where the economic nodes are. Then I look at how it's being implemented and then I look at how it's been spoken about then I look at how it's treated in the press. It's 
either, you know, they're only extreme positions that make it. But I just found that there was no rational voice mm-hmm. um, that says, okay, we've got this land reform as part of something that needs to happen as, as per the constitution, but I just never saw anyone take um, take ownership of it, um, even within, you know, within government. The policies were just unclear. Each minister had its own ideas about how to go about it. Mm-hmm. And, and so even some of the legislative requirements, like for example, let me give you a very you know, example. There's a provision in the, in the constitution that says that the state must take measures to ensure that there is equitable redistribution. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, and, and we don't have an legislation. And the constitution was born in 1996. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Until today, we don't have that act because it was just never a priority. And then when you look at the... the, the but this whole, whole thing about expropriation without compensation? So that whole thing... First of all, the concept of expropriation exists across the world. It's not new. Yeah. The only difference between South Africa and the rest of the world is that in the rest of the world, you use expropriation as a tool to gain land or property for a public purpose. If you want to build a school, a hospital, you use it as a tool to acquire that land. Now, our constitution is unique because it says that you must expropriate land for purposes of land reform. And land reform is taken to mean as some, to be something in the public interest. But as I said, I don't know where, um, I don't know where things went wrong, but I think also with, with, with expropriation without compensation, based on the current reading of the constitution, even if you were to implement it to the latter, it's not going to open up vast land. It's not going to solve all land problems. It might work in a few situations where maybe the land is not used or maybe where the land was donated, someone didn't actually buy it, um, or where there has been no direct state investment. But those instances are far and few and few in between. So that's why I said the overemphasis on expropriation without compensation was very hyperbolic. And it was very... Politics also played a role. I think parties wanted to be seen to be doing something about it. But at the end of the day, we government has still not pushed itself to implement the three legs of, 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 of land reform. Remember, expropriation is just one tool that can be used. Yes, yes. There's still restitution. Restitution where if you have your grandparents that were dispossessed of land, KZN or whatever, you can lodge a land claim. But currently we still have thousands and thousands of land claims that have been lodged that where people have not been given the land or people have been given the land They've now had to sell the land back because they're not given the post-settlement support. You still have a lot of people being evicted from land unfairly mm. because they don't have legal representation. Mm. You know, um, it's still it's the land reform question is still so litigious in a society where people don't have access to good legal representation. They can't afford it. They can't afford mm. it. So it's still the power, the pace, and the substance of land reform is still concentrated amongst those that are able to to access lawyers, advocates, and courts. So most of our problems actually are not even making it to that court because people just simply don't have the resources. Um, so I think it, it, it has, the executive and parliament have got to take more intentional effort at delivering it 
so that we don't end up with the courts having to be the arbiters in a situation where we don't have, we have so many such an inequality when it comes to legal representation. So how do we um, fix it? Is it fixable um, as, a, as a legal person and as an activist? How do you think we can grapple with this, with this uh, challenge? So number one, the state must utilize all its legislative powers. Mm -hmm. But I'll be the first person to say you don't change society by changing laws all the time. But mm -hmm. you do need the laws. Mm -hmm. um, for example, you do need the Redistribution Act that, that tells us all who qualifies for land, under what circumstances, where, and who are those beneficiaries. We need that. We don't have that. So it's not one thing that we need to do. We need to do a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you need a proper urban land policy that allows... Um, and these are the recommendations I made when I was part of the presidential advisory pa panel. And as part of the panel, we made those recommendations mm -hmm. to say the state must release land and buildings that it currently has yes. for the benefit of the citizens. Um, and there's a commercial there's a commercial issue because those government departments also use that as their balance sheets to borrow money. So sure. I, I understand sure, sure, that sure, dichotomy. Sure. But then number three, you also need to get to a point where our tenure system, so in other words, your land rights, such, such as title deeds or whatever, do you know that at the moment 80% of South Africans are not part of the deed registry? 80%? Um, 80%. 80%. Wow. In urban and rural areas, uh, because uh, they don't have, they have informal land rights. Remember what the apartheid legacy was. What apartheid did is, if you are living in the rural areas in uh, on communal land, uh, you don't have a title deed. You have a permission to oh occupy. Oh yeah, we have the Ngonyama Trust. Yes, so you can't own land. You can't own yeah, land. Yeah, and in yeah. fact, the banks won't recognize the permission to occupy because the banks don't know how to use it as an instrument. Exactly. Uh, and if you're in the urban areas, you live in a backyard or whatever. Some townships have title deeds, but most still don't. What that means is that does South Africa truly, truly then belong to all? Or does South Africa tr belong to those that are in the formal economy? Like yes. you, you'll have your lease, you'll have your mortgage bond and, and so forth. Um, and then for me, what's also important is that those that are landowners that have vast land, it's also incumbent upon them to make land available. Mm -hmm. And this is, sounds like a, a, a ridiculous and wild, wild allegation. But I've had people come to me in my offices to say, I'm a farmer. I own vast land. Where can I find people that I can donate the land to? Really? Some, yeah, some have said, so-and-so, oh. -and -so, Violet has worked in our family, has lived here. So have her parents and her children. We want to make... So, also, we need to appeal to the goodwill and conscience of people mm, before mm. we can want to falsely, you know, expropriate. Of course, there's, the, you know, but I think, I think we need to deal with it also on a very human level to say this problem is not just for black people or mm. poor black people. Mm. If we are to go, if, if we're going to unite this nation, we are going to have to find solutions and appeal also to the conscience of those that know that they have more land than that they need. Mm -hmm. This is why in the presidential advisory panel, I suggested a land donations policy. Maybe it has to be also legislated so that it's clear, it goes to public, public consultation. So it was just, just a recommendation at the Yes, time. yes. Okay. I think there is one, a draft uh, policy, but I'm not sure how, how, whether that document has come to life. And I think also, it's what we, you and I can do in our spaces. You know, I didn't know, when I was in the panel, I didn't know the concept of, it's called nimbism. 
N-I-M-B-Y-I-S-M. You know what that means? Not in my backyard. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So not in my backyard means if you are privileged, uh, you have a home, you have a garden, you have a swimming pool, you'd say, yes, we must do land reform. But how open are you to say, I'm willing to close my swimming pool so that my home can yes. house... And you donate it. And you donate yeah. it. Yeah. We, oh. it. It's a mindset shift because I think yeah. where we are right now, and of course government must do what government needs to do, but I think what if we actually imagined a world where we, whoever has, can also open up that space and open up that land so we can coexist, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. ultimately... That's what's going to determine if you're a true South African citizen. It's whether you have access to land. And maybe you don't need to own it, right? I don't know. But whether you have access to land, you're able to to do your uh, rituals. I mean, now, you know, 20-something years after democracy, we're now able to have Lobola celebrations in our suburban homes and mm. to slaughter in our mm. suburban yes, homes. Yes, yes. It's that whole idea <clears throat> of thinking about land beyond um, the rents and cents. But as... Am I able to, am I seen? Do I matter? Do I have a stake in this new South Africa? Sure. And where do I belong? Cool. On that note, uh, where do I belong? This is my land. This is our land. Uh, the subject here, obviously, is the book, My Land Obsession by Bulelwa Mabasa. It's on the shelves. You can get it. Um, you can buy it online or whatever. But you have to read it to appreciate um, the, the candor of, of, of this writer um, explaining her love for the land that she occupies and uh, 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 making suggestions as to how we can better appreciate and share the land. My land in uh, obsession. Bulelwa Mabasa and I'm Fred Kumalo. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was an honor. Uh, it was my honor. <laughs> <laughs>